So this show is carbon positive. We've partnered with Carbon Positive to allow us to get to that point. Listen to the show to find out how you also can become carbon positive. I have one GCSE. I'm dyslexic, I'm dyspraxic, and I have mild ADHD, which makes things rather exciting when trying to run a business. However, I have built multi-million pound businesses with no investment, and now I invest in others. And guess what? I love every minute. I'm Oliver Bruce. This is my podcast, Success is in the Mind, and welcome to The Journey, a podcast where we speak to founders and entrepreneurs from the businesses that you've always wanted to know more about. We delve into the formative years of their business lives and ask those with the inside track on startup and scale up life, the questions I wish I knew the answers to when I started out. As always, the more you share and subscribe to this podcast, the more people that'll be able to learn, enjoy and avoid the mistakes that so many make. So when should you raise VC funding? Should founders give all employees equity and what do acronyms banded around in boardrooms like SEIS, EIS, TAM and VAT actually mean to founders like you? We'll shed light on just how many founders are neurologically diverse, and we'll show you how to get through tough times when things inevitably get hard. I'm Oliver Bruce, and welcome to Success is in the Mind, the journey. All, all it takes is one of us to say, don't worry guys, we'll get through this. You know, there's always going to be a way. We've made many, many mistakes and we've gone down paths that we shouldn't have gone down. We live for the risk, we live for the, the exciting. So for the first, yeah, six months of the business, we operated out of his kitchen and then we actually upscaled, uh, and this is something that we've never actually shared, but we upscaled into a three by three gazebo in his garden. Everything is on us. We are independent in this and we really have to to put the effort in if we want to, and with putting the effort in, it means we are going to have to make sacrifices. Hello, boys. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, look, I want to understand a bit about you both. You you were both born, and now you're both here. So tell me a little bit about that journey. Sure. So uh, we, we actually both grew up in Cornwall, uh, and I'll let Ranj uh, go through his part, because it's a very different part of Cornwall, but I was from the north side, which is very much more rural, very much more rugged. Uh, and the area that I was from really had nothing going for it, really. My school uh, was the, the only one in a 50-mile radius. Uh, the nearest supermarket was about a 40-minute drive, so it was very out in the sticks. And growing up, uh, I always felt very kind of different to other children in the sense that everyone uh, down there didn't really have much aspiration, didn't really have much uh, desire. Um, and growing up in that environment, I always found it very difficult to uh, essentially express myself. So it wasn't really until university uh, that I found, I suppose, my tribe and, and my people. But being uh, at university kind of furthered my hatred for education in general. I was mm -hmm. always the questioner. I was always the person that would ask, why am I doing this? Why am I sat in an entrepreneurship class being told that uh, Dyson was the person who invented the Hoover when in fact he wasn't? Uh, by someone who was 28 and apparently an expert in entrepreneurialism. That for me was a real eye-opener um, as to kind of how broken that system was. So I, I really was not uh, very high in attendance. I think I had 8% attendance over four years. Uh, wow. But the most important part of that journey for me was actually doing an internship with Philips, the big electronics oh, company. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, during that time, after two weeks of being in the internship, I was sat down by my boss who's to this day, one of my biggest inspirations and biggest mentors. And she said to me, Zav, whatever you do, do not go corporate. And I asked her, <laughs> I thinking I was being told off in this meeting room. And she said, you asked too many questions. And from yeah. that day forward, I remember thinking, okay, this isn't the right setting for me in the way that I think and the way that I am. So I have to do something with that. And she actually had a business outside of her uh, job and she, she was very successful in running that. And, and that kind of inspired me to start thinking about business in terms of being an entrepreneur and less in terms of climbing the corporate ladder. So um, I actually started my first business just before I left university and tried building that for, for three, four years. And mm -hmm. uh, the story then it kind of intertwines, which I can go into later with Mixtons, mm -hmm. but that was really the, the kind of foundation of me and who I am. And you mentioned earlier about the the mic setup that you've got and the fact that that's for your music. When you say about living in Cornwall and not being able to express yourself, has music been quite a big part of, of, of how you have developed as a person then? Huge. I think I'm a, I'm a hugely creative person. I think that comes from uh, I have dyslexia and, and probably traits of ADD. So for me, music really allows me to kind of connect and understand the world uh, in, a, in a way that I think 
uh, most dyslexic would, would probably understand. It, it kind of forms a, a part of uh, my life and my day to day that allows me to process and, and think about the world differently. So. Uh, growing up, I was a drummer, um, and then I was in a band for a while. I then had a really great rapport with my guitarist, who was jealous of what I was doing. I was jealous of what he was doing, so we switched. Ended up <laughs> learning guitar, and then uh, a few other instruments on the side. But it's always been integ integral to who I am. You're, you're a one-man band, then. You can literally play everything. Almost. I can't <laughs> sing very well, though. Oh, well, you know, nearly <laughs> The mic is Ranj... a bit pointless. <laughs> well, it looks cool. It looks, it looks it looks dog's bollocks. In terms of Ranj, what you were like at school, and from a neurodiversity point of view, obviously, Zav being dyslexic is, I suppose, really important. I, too, am dyslexic and dyspraxic. What have, what have you got that kind of, I suppose, makes you special? Yeah, I think, as Zav already alluded to, you know, we both grew up in Cornwall. There's not much going on at all. Um, and... You know, I just kind of found myself going through the motions. Um, I never felt it was much of a struggle. I never had to like push that hard. Um, but equally, so I was never, your, I was never your, your A star student. You know, top of the class constantly, you know, glue two shoes. But equally, I was, I never really struggled. And I think, especially in Cornwall, where you grew up, and there's, there's a lack of kind of ambition, as I've touched on, and awareness of what there is out there, and you know, where the heights you can reach. Um, I think that linked together, kind of. You just find yourself going through the motions, um, but equally, kind of just always questioning why am I here? You know, why? What am I doing this for? Why do I need to know this? Is this ever going to be beneficial in life? Um, but I think because I grew up in quite a traditional background, I equally wasn't getting those answers at home. Um, you know, don't get me wrong. I, you know, I love my family. I was brought up exceptionally, and they kind of really, really great role models. And I think. I went down the path I went on because of that, because I didn't know what else there was. So I kind of, you know, went through school, went through college, didn't know what else to do. The gap year was never on the cards because my, my dad probably would have <laughs> killed me. Um, but ended up going to uni, doing engineering because, you know, I was good at art, right. I was good at science, I was creative, um, good at maths. What else is there to do? So yeah, started to do engineering. And again, I just found myself going through the motion, the same thing. I never really had that eureka moment where I really kind of realized what I wanted to do in life. Um, I mm -hmm. always felt that there was just something missing constantly. Um, even when I was a child, you know, mm -hmm. everyone was doing cafe jobs. I was doing a paper round at 6 a.m. Everyone was, yeah. you know, playing football. I was playing hockey. Everyone was doing this. I was going on lone walks, going surfing, whatever. And it wasn't until I actually found cocktails, which mm -hmm. is where I really got that spark. And then I fell into working at a bar, which was when I was broke at uni. Um, everyone was, you know, going out every night, getting absolutely wasted. I was working really hard, you know, to try and, you know, earn money to live. But also, I just loved cocktails. You know, mm -hmm. I started working in a cocktail bar, and I kind of just fed off that hunger. And from then, again, similar to Zav, I got a partner, an internship, sorry, and and that still didn't really tick the box. You know, I was sat next to people who were all just on this conveyor belt, on this pathway. You know directors who'd been in this company for 30, 40 years on one side of me. On the other side of me, I had, you know, a graduate who was so excited about his career prospects of being an engineer. And I just didn't have that. But, you know, I still had this bar job on the side that I actually lo I absolutely loved. You know, I'd be working Monday to Friday in London. And then some Wednesday evenings, I'd work until 3 a.m. at the bar because I loved it so much. The weekends, I'd be out doing events because I loved it so much. And there was this pure draw towards hospitality, uh, and in particular, what drinks actually you know do, as opposed to a tool to kind of you know just get drunk and whatever. As all my peers saw it, it was actually this is a social, um, a social tool that really elevates experiences and brings people together. And there's so much more to it. And I think yeah, that's where the whole kind of passion and kind of I guess why I'm here today. And I suppose, obviously, both living in Cornwall, it's not a massive place, I suppose. But in terms of how you both met prior to the Mixtons world, which we're now in, how did you come across each other? It was totally random. Um, so we were both part of the surf club at Surrey University, which is not two things that you would normally put together, given <laughs> that Surrey is so far from the beach. But it was very much the, the one lifeline that I think we both had whilst we were there, because every yeah. year they would organize a week-long trip um, to somewhere in Europe. Um, and it was actually on one of those trips uh, that we met and mm -hmm. we were introduced as being the two people from Cornwall and we met each other and we were like, no way. 
this is uh, so random. And, and that was very much the beginnings of, a, I suppose, a now a seven-year relationship or friendship, not relationship. Yeah. Although at times <laughs> it does feel like we're married. <laughs> yeah, it definitely is a relationship, yeah. <laughs> but there's a third of you as well to throw into the mix of that relationship, isn't there, in terms of from a co-founder point of view as well, at, at Mixtons. How, how, why three? Why not just the two of you? You know, the strongest shape of the triangle, and I think having three perspectives on anything is just... It's just, it's always going to be better than two. And myself and Zav um, come from two very, you know, different backgrounds. Sim comes from an, an even more different background. He's from Bulgaria. Um, he's extremely passionate about everything he does. Um, and he provides such a meticulous level of detail in terms of the actual product side of things. Um, we've got, you know, Zav, who comes from business brand, me from logistical, operational, financial. Um, and then Sim really ties it together nicely. Uh, and also, you know, at the end of the day, we just get on so well. We're all friends way before the business. Um, and it just it just made sense. This podcast is sponsored by Huel, and I want to talk to you about the Huel Black Edition, which is a high-protein meal with everything your body needs in a complete shake. All you need to do is add two scoops to water, and you've got yourself 26 essential vitamins and minerals and 40 grams of protein in one 400-calorie serving. I'm sure many of you can relate to not being able to get a nutritious breakfast or lunch in your working week, and I've found that Huel is the answer. It automates what you do for those meals, so in the morning, I don't have to think about it. I add water, two scoops, shake and go. It eliminates the possibility of making those questionable breakfast decisions and I know I've got the protein, I've got the calories and I've got the vitamins. During the working day, just automate it. Make it easy for yourself. There's all sorts of good stuff in Huel. Vitamin D, C, E, iron, fibre, protein. It saves me time and it saves you that decision-making process that sometimes leads to you choosing the more unhealthy option. So, if you want to try it, go to Huel.com forward slash success. That's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash success and you'll get a free t-shirt and a shaker with your first order. Back to the episode. You also managed to use Sim's Kitchen in the pandemic. That was the main thing that he bought to it, right? It's, it's certainly not the main thing, but it was certainly useful in the early days. Um, so for the first yeah six months of the business, we operated out of his kitchen and then we actually upscaled, uh, and this is something that we've never actually shared, but we upscaled into a three by three gazebo in his garden uh, once his flatmates started getting annoyed that we were using their kitchen so much and we were in that gazebo for the best part of two, three months, I believe. Uh, it was shipping about 75 boxes a day. So. It was a really interesting time, but um, just to expand on, on Raja's point, the, the way that we usually kind of visualize it is yeah. if you were to take a ship, um, I'm very much at the front of the ship with the binoculars saying, this is kind of where we should go and this is where the opportunity is. Raja's in the middle of the ship on the steering wheel going, okay, how do we turn that into a direction in the coming months? And then Sim is, is the person building the ship and plugging the holes and making sure that we don't sink essentially. So I think having three of us is essential. Um, not only in terms of perspective, but also just in terms of running the business day to day. And this is the first series that we've done on this podcast, where actually the majority of the businesses that we've interviewed have had three co-founders. And it's really interesting because it's not necessarily something that I've ever thought of having in terms of having uh, two other business partners. I have got a business partner. But Zav, I suppose, you know, looking at that ship analogy, could you do it without the other two around you? No, absolutely not. And I think it's essential to look at where your strengths and weaknesses lie. And I think the three of us, what we have built so solidly is a really great foundation of communication where we go, okay, let's be real here and let's not be egotists about what we're trying to build here. Um, if I was to try and do everything, Mixtons would never have got off the line. And I'm sure Ranj and Sim would say the same, um, vice versa. I think we all bring elements that are essential to making this work. Um, and without those constituent parts, it would just be impossible. And I think particularly in a world of product where you do have the elements of branding and the elements of marketing that are essential, but equally you have to understand how the product works, how to put that together. Uh, it, it's it's far more complex than um, I think we first imagined when we were getting into it. So if it was just two of us or one of us, then absolutely I can say with certainty we would not be where we are today. And in terms then of, of coming up with the Mixtons idea, which which I don't think was called Mixtons when it first started, but it was in the pandemic. You were in a gazebo, as you said. You know, who had that eureka moment of going, right? We're going to make the the best cocktails that there possibly are, and we're going to sell them to people. So the the founding story is 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 fairly funny actually. So 
prior to the pandemic, um, there were, I had my own business and Ranj and Sim were running uh, their own business too. So they used to have a franchise of a mobile events company down in the southwest of Cornwall where they had a fleet of old school VW vans. The roof would lift up and inside of it was a bar. And they would travel around the country doing festivals like Glastonbury, Isle of Wight. And I, I remember looking at those guys' lives and thinking about that. It's amazing. It, it was a lot of fun from the outside. And myself, I was building an influencer marketing platform in the travel space, connecting creators with hotels around the world. Um, and as soon as the pandemic hit, naturally, both businesses got put totally on pause. Um, so between us, I think we spent the first few months uh, kind of scratching our heads, wondering what to do. And then uh, Ranj came up with a, the great idea to, between our friendship group every week, to jump on a Zoom call and just have a drinking session together, essentially to... <laughs> have some social time and have something to look forward to in the week. Yeah, yeah. Um, so we decided to do uh, a wine week, we did a gin week, we did a rum week, and then we got to cocktail week. And Ranj uh, very kindly sent across the ingredients list to make an espresso martini and a margarita. And the total sum of the cost for all of the, for those two cocktails was 80 pounds in raw ingredients. And I remember saying to Ranj, there's no way in hell you're getting 10 people who've just been either furloughed or lost their businesses to spend that much money. So that was kind of problem number one that we came across. So we went out to the supermarkets and bought as many pre-mades as we possibly could. And upon going to the supermarkets, we were kind of really bewildered at how uh, few different recipes there were and how unexciting it was. It was the same porn star martini, mojito, uh, et cetera, combinations from about 10 different brands. So we're like, fine, let's just try them. So we jumped onto the Zoom call, tasted them, and were just mortified at how shit they were. <laughs> and it was very much on on that call, I suppose, that Rand was the, the first to say, okay, there's something here. The, these guys have amazing recipes. Why don't we just put something together and send them out to people? So um, we spent two, three months putting together a prototype, and we initially sent it out for free to 100 people. We bought what we thought was about six months worth of stock, um, and we launched in about September, October of 2020. And within two weeks, we had sold out of that initial batch. And that was really where we first got validation that actually what we were doing was not only uh, great in terms of taste, but the thing that we've always had from the very beginning is that half our range was entirely unique and uh, kind of exotic in terms of the flavors that we were doing. So we did our own spicy melons, we did a cheeky peach, we did candy pants, cocktails that didn't exist already. And that hit so well with our custom base that um, I suppose that really laid the foundation for where we are now. And you say that the cocktails in the supermarkets tasted shit. Your your slogan is cocktails that don't taste shit, which I think is 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 really quite smart. It's a bit like Hawkston beer with Clarkson and and and, and Caleb, where they go, "Fuck me, it's good." And actually, that comedy is quite is quite refreshing. Was that sort of part of it? Was that you know serendipitous? But obviously, is that going to stick as you go through the new rebrand that you're just about to finish, if not already? Yeah, it, it it's a funny one because. We, we actually didn't have that. Our, our initial kind of, I guess, slogan or tagline to say was was actually, um, you know, delivering the party because, of course, we were born out of the lockdown and, you know, we were, we were evolved around there. We, we always knew that there was more to it. You know, there was always, you know, we weren't just going to be around for COVID. And we were seeking this, you know, this tagline. And it wasn't until our first live event, we were in Edinburgh, um, where we were essentially proving the model works in a live capacity, you know, in front of people and serving this across bars. And, um, and so many people were just saying, oh my God, this, this doesn't taste shit. Like this is a pre-made cocktail that just doesn't taste shit. And everyone was just bewildered by the fact And we, we ourselves, you know, we knew they didn't, but we were so you know, shocked by the fact that people were shocked, but they didn't taste shit. And of course it just meant, it kind of just tied itself really nicely that actually why try and create something that's, you know, got so many levels to actually, these are pre-made cocktails that don't taste shit. One of our biggest like uh, I guess hurdles in this business is trying to get over that that kind of you know that pre presumption because of these cans that all in in supermarkets because of these big global conglomerates that are pumping out you know shit tasting poorly made liquids that <laughs> to be frank yeah. aren't consumer faith you know they're not thinking about the consumer yeah we thought hang on this really just just hits different right these it, it says what we are it says what we do and of course it speaks volume to our brand and who we are. Uh, and the sort of message that we want to be, be putting out to, to the world. 
So at what point then did you guys bring on your, your sort of first round of investors and the NEDs? Because you've got quite quite the board of NEDs and you've got influencers like Cal Frazier involved as well. You know, uh, from that Edinburgh sort of festival taste session through to bringing on that, that, that board and getting that first round of investment, what did that look like? Yeah, so I think from the very early days, um, it was very much a, let's build something and see how it goes. And I don't think we anticipated the level of success that we had in the early days. So in our first nine months, when we were operating our Sims kitchen in that beloved gazebo, we shipped about 10,000 orders, um, which is insane for, I think, any company that's uh, operating, even if they're fully fledged, let alone for, <laughs> for three guys in a kitchen. So I think as time went on, we realized the scope and the size of the opportunity um, and we actually saw that there had been no brand who'd really managed to capture the hearts of the people, essentially. If you look at other verticals like uh, craft beer or smoothies, they've all got a known household now, challenger brand that sits in that space. And cocktails have just have not been able to do that. If you go up to someone in the street and ask them to name a cocktail brand, some might be able to name a couple of the big ones, but re realistically, no one's been able to do it. So that for us was really the goal, um, I suppose, from that point. And in order to get there, of course, we need we, we knew that we needed to raise money in order to invest and to essentially scale the brand. It wasn't that we were not profitable from uh, from the very get go because we um, we've always operated very close to profitability through the events arm of the business. So it was very much a, a scale tactic that we decided last year in around March time to bring on uh, that round of investment. And as you mentioned, uh, we were I suppose very fortunate to meet some of the investors that we have on board now. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of uh, that ten thousand distribution from a tent, essentially, you know, what what did that kind of look like when you were trying to, and I suppose Rand yourself, trying to mix ten thousand cocktails from a small sink in a in, in in a tent? You know, what how how did that work? Because that is a a huge feat for one man. Yeah, it was to be to be to be completely transparent. It was it was carnage. Um, <laughs> it was it was you, it was something like you've never seen before. You know, it was it was absolutely. You know, pedal to the metal. You know, there's an opportunity here. We're just going to do whatever we can to keep riding this wave. Um, you know, ads are performing incredibly. Let's just keep on cranking those up, right? We're getting a huge return custom rate. Let's do whatever we can to keep them coming back. Discount. It was essentially let's just keep on building and building and building as much as we can, no matter what it takes operationally. If it takes, you know, getting up at 5 a.m., mixing, you know, because don't forget that these cocktails had to be sent by 3 p.m. each day because that's the cutoff point. And we wanted to offer next day to really drive that transaction rate. And it was all, okay, what can we do to really just keep on, keep the momentum? So yeah, it was it was get up at, you know, 5, 6 a.m., you like mix these batches of cocktails, hand pour them uh, at this stage uh, into individual bottles, individual, um, and then package them all up independently to the orders. Uh, we we managed to build out a small team of friends who were willing to, to you know help us along the way and, and add a little bit of money um, and essentially just keep on making slight iterations to this operational scale to cut corners and not cut quality but just to essentially streamline this process. Um, you know, to start with, we were it took us about I think the very first day we started doing these orders, um, it took us about eight hours to do ten orders. Uh, which is just right, okay. ludicrous. Um, yeah. You know, now it takes us about eight seconds to do that many. Um, <laughs> so it was very much a constant iteration, iterative process on, okay, how do we speed this up? How do we, we don't need to do that. Let's do this instead. Let's buy this piece of equipment to cut back corner. But, you know, constantly just iterating, constantly streamlining, and just a hell of a lot of time, graft, effort, very little sleep, um, and just organization as well at the end of the day. You know, if, if things weren't ordered on time, if things weren't, um, you know, kept accountable, if, if stock wasn't on top of, we, you know, we would have missed the mark. So it was very much just learning the hard way, um, definitely making a few mistakes, um, but yeah, just, just keeping on top of it and hard graft really. And I, I think that plays a really important part of the story because we, from the very beginning, we could have gone straight to a can manufacturer and a recipe developer and go, we see an opportunity here, let's go and blow 50, 100, 200 grand on building a brand, building something, um, and then go and knock on a retailer's door and say, please take us. But we had a conversation very, very early where we said, let's see how far we can go by doing it ourselves. Um, and I think that iterative process has allowed us to 
now do seven figures in in revenue, um, far surpassing it in uh, in just under two years. And I think that is almost unheard of in the drink space, given that we have now made about I, I wouldn't even know, but it's nearing half a million cocktails by hand ourselves. And, and that is that then allows us to go, okay, in, in order to take that next step, in order to break into retail, which is where we are currently, we have such a strong foundation to do that from that means that we, we can essentially skip a lot of the hardships that you would, you normally have to face if you're a brand new retail brand. And what's exciting, you're absolutely right in terms of your analogy about the, the cocktail brand and naming one. I mean, Zav, you said online about you guys wanting to be the next brew dog of cocktails, and I suppose that makes absolute sense. And how important is that events side of it, uh, flag-waving and helping with that profitability? It's huge. It, it essentially acts as the heart of the business. And again, it's I would say it, it it's what you would call our kind of unique competitive advantage. Because of the prior relationships that Ranj and Sim had built with their prior business, um, with those large festival organizers, we essentially have a roadmap of summer events that allows us to not only get liquid into the lips of hundreds of thousands of people, but actually build a really profitable revenue foundation to drive the rest of the business from. So instead of having the usual run rate that most businesses have when they're raising capital and saying, this is directly being burnt every month, we're saying we can sustain ourselves and we will do so continuously, but any money that we're bringing in is then fueling growth. And that gives us such a strong leverage because that growth directly leads to more people tasting our product at these events, which then means conversion when we get to retail will become easier. In terms of from a product perspective as well, it's just it's just unparalleled because, you know, we, we never sat you know, we never sat down in a in a border eating meeting in a lab just, you know, thinking about what is the right cocktails to do and, you know, before you know, computer says this is the right way to go. It was all very much driven from the consumer. You know, we've We've had X amount of years in the past serving these drinks in a different capacity, but nonetheless, face-to-face service. We know that people want this. We know people love this. We know people don't want this. Okay, let's test this. Right, we'll go do this event. We'll take 10,000 cocktails. Let's get the feedback. And it's, again, it's a constant iterative process, you know, driving the business is essentially a product of the consumer demands. Um, And that's why I think it's, again, like Zav said, our differentiating factor because you know, we are, we're just a product of the people really. Um, and you know, what business at our stage can say that their products have been tried and tested by over 200,000 people in person. Um, and that just puts us on, it's such a good advantage in terms of, okay, we can even tweak recipes because again, we're doing it all in house. We can tweak recipes based on, okay, that's too spicy. That's not spicy enough. There's the perfect middle ground. Let's test it. Um, so it's, it's perfect really. I just wanted to say, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. And if you are, we'd love it if you could rate it, subscribe to it and share it with friends and colleagues. As you know, the more reach that we get, the bigger the guests become and the more knowledge sharing that we can do. To find out more, head over to successpodcast.co.uk. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu, offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at habu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. It sounds all quite serendipitous, like everything's kind of just fallen into place pretty well. A pandemic happened, which was negative for so many, but for you guys allowed you to start this 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 company. The events side of the business kind of plugged in perfectly. You know, Zav, with your influencer side of, of, of your sort of knowledge, I suppose, allowed you to to introduce and market the business properly. You know, so many people start out with nothing, but you guys seem to have started out with everything. You just needed to bring it together. Would you have done it strategically or was it pretty accidental on this journey? It's a great question. And I think part of the the journey is always accidental. And I think you, as long as you, and this is where coming back to that question around the co-foundership and I suppose the trio that we have, we've made many, many mistakes and we've gone down paths that we shouldn't have gone down, but all of those things add to our 
vocabulary of learning and understanding of how the industry works. And we've had many, many difficult situations, one of which I, I remember probably the worst day that we've had was when we had a, a £25,000 debt that was to be paid in three days and we had £11 in our bank account because we just invested so heavily in stock for a specific event. We had a, an event that weekend and unless we could repay that £25,000, then we were essentially done for. Mm -hmm. um, this was pre-investment, pre-everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think we made about £26,500. So Bloody. we had literally just made the, the threshold. So there are so many moments like that that I could tell you where we were we were really cutting it fine and it was certainly wasn't serendipitous or, or easy. But I think the thing that we've always had is a really strong foundation of we know who we are, mm -hmm. we know why we're doing this, and we're not doing it based off of assumption, we're not doing it based off of a of, of kind of uh, nonsensical dream that we have. We're doing it because we know customers want this. And that really ties in with the rebrand, with where we're going right now. Every decision that we have moving forward is based on customer and not assumption. Anytime we get one of these curveballs that just, you know, would wipe, should wipe us for six, uh, we call it a thumb. Um, and, you know, it's just this constant thing that we don't know if it's around the corner, uh, but it's always going to be there and it's always going to come eventually. But it's how you deal with it and kind of how we react. And, and again, another huge benefit to being three of us is that, you know, even, all, all it takes is one of us to say, don't worry, guys, we'll get through this. You know, there's always going to be a way. Um, generally speaking, you know, we're all full guns blazing. We're all, we're all ready to roll. But it's it's just an always always a way mentality that means we just we just know there's going to be a way to get through this. So, boys, in terms of the new brand, what what's the positioning and why have you sort of chosen that stance then? As you mentioned, the brand in its old form was pre-made cocktails that don't taste shit, and we were really focused on solving the quality issue and solving the taste issue. Um, but as I mentioned before, half of the range has always been unique and exotic, and that. The customer demand is there for that proposition. So when looking, I suppose, at a matrix of where brands are currently positioned, you do have brands that are tasting better in a pre-made format, but they're still not enticing people to um, have anything that is innovative or uh, exciting within the flavor ranges. They're just doing the old school better. And as we mentioned, for us, the old school is out. People have moved past that. It is rooted in traditions that started 200 years ago. We want to evolve cocktails past that and we want to actually take or almost make the cocktail of tomorrow um, or even of today, not even looking at the past and going, how can we take something that's been done and, and improve it? So for us, the new brand really revolves around this idea of kind of twisted cocktails. And that's really the centerpiece of everything that we're operating on. So uh, we, we really like the, the kind of premise of the, the classic stick or twist, which is obviously a blackjack uh, rule. You can either stay with what you have and the history that comes with it. And I mean, cocktail culture in its current form has been cheapened. If you look at what mass markets are doing, real bars, you've got places like Slug and Lettuce and Turtle Bay that just churn out cheap shit by the masses. You've got hordes of people going to bottomless brunches and stumbling out the door at two o'clock. And it's just not a good look. People don't want to associate themselves with cocktails in, in their current form. And then in RTDs, it's even worse. As we mentioned, you've got 4 to 6% mass market shit, or you've got the, the premium stuff that's just the old in a new format. We really want to create cocktails that allow for that excitement, allow for that discovery, and allow people that platform to have those unexpected moments where you, you, you're not picking it up because you think, oh, I'm comparing this to something I've had before. You're picking it up because you're going, ah, oh, this sounds exciting. And if it's good, which we guarantee it will be, you're going to tell your friends about it and you're going to be that person that's then known for sharing uh, the, their new favorite drink, which we can guarantee will almost be a spicy melon. So for us, that gives us a load of excitement as a brand, um, but also puts us in, in a new quadrant, I suppose, of positioning that we can really build something solid from this. And I suppose the most exciting part is where do we go from cocktails? And I can leave that as a as an interesting um, unknown, if you like. 
And Zav, in terms of kind of when we spoke about um, the espresso martinis at the top, you know, that was something which people loved and people were buying. But you guys have sort of started to sack off the uh, the legacy, I suppose, cocktails and go down your own route of, you know, owning the IP and coming up with the flavours. What was the reason for that? Because that's a, that's a big change for RTD brands. Well, I think funnily, it's actually, the question is almost the other way around, because when we first launched the company, we had this range of amazing drinks that the guys had brought forwards from prior knowledge and also some experimentation that we did, such as the spicy melons, which is very much our our kind of our, our favorite little baby because it, it was uh, actually an accident. That's another story. But it was when we launched, we actually said, oh, we should probably do some classics as well because our assumption is that that's what the people want, right? They're not going to want this crazy random range of innovative drinks. People are going to want the the kind of standards. Um, and I think that assumption over time we realized was categorically incorrect. Mm. Uh, and I suppose it also speaks to the DNA of, of the, the that first instance when we had that Zoom call and we were drinking those drinks, wondering why no one was doing anything exciting in the category. Um, over time and having spoken to our customers, in fact, we just did some primary research, mm-hmm. only 15% of people are looking for really classic cocktails that they know and love. Mm. The remaining 85% are looking for drinks either with a twist, so something that's familiar but has something exciting going on, or indeed something completely new and exotic. And if you look at the shelf at the moment in, in any supermarket, everyone is doing the same shit. Mm. And everyone's doing it. Either so There are some brands who are, are doing better in quality now, but they're still not appealing to that new, exciting, and innovative um, sense. And really, if you look at where cocktails come from, back in the day, a cocktail bar would be the place that you go to with a friend to either celebrate a social occasion or have a catch-up. And you might look at the menu and you might find something that gives you a sense of excitement and gives you a sense of uh, almost... Uh, adventure because you're you're browsing the menu and you're seeing these exotic flavors floating around and i suppose our whole business is built on the fact that the best memories and the best times that you have are the ones that are unexpected the ones that you don't realize are about to happen and i could probably say that your best evenings out are the ones that take you by surprise where you go to the pub on a tuesday and you end up in a really cheesy nightclub, drink, uh, dancing to ABBA, uh, and it's How far better than. How did you know, Zav? How did yeah. you know? <laughs> and it's far better than the New Year's Eve that you plan, which is always yeah. disappointing. Yeah. So, how do we actually allow for those moments to come through to people and give people a platform to have those moments of unexpected fun? It's by providing a drink that is familiar with a twist, and that's really what we're building the brand around, which is why we've ditched all of the classics and said, okay, that's not what people are after. People are looking for those moments that allow the social shareability of drinks again. Yeah, no, it makes absolutely sense. It's very exciting. I'm really glad I've invested in this because you're selling it to me again, even though I'm already in, but I'm there. <laughs> Ranj, in terms of in terms of the mental acumen that you need, because obviously you, you mentioned about how you just need your two co-founders to pick you up and say, let's crack on when, when, when things do get tough. You know, you being the man that shakes the cocktails and makes the magic happen in that sense, do you ever just go, I'm just not interested in making another cocktail? I'm just out now, or, or is it something that that you got you're very very passionate about? Yes, I'd say I'd say no. That that's definitely never crossed my mind. You know, I think for me, there's like Zav said, there's there's so much more to cocktails than just shaking a drink and just being the liquid. It's it's everything that comes around it. You know, it's it's the fact that these this is the tool that I've seen. You know, since I was, you know it all goes all the way back to since I was a child. You know, um, I've always seen cocktails and drinks as more than just the liquid that they are you know it's the craft behind them it's the memories they create it's the feeling that you get it's the taste it's the the nuances it's, it's really an appreciation so i think yes from a brand perspective um you know we think there's a huge gap in the market but also there's a, this is a product that's not going anywhere you know this is it's something that's got a huge potential just to keep on growing if we can just essentially you know evolve um potentially uh, a semi-outdated um, product into something which is really new and exciting, just keep on driving that cocktail factor and all those feelings forward, then I can never get bored of it, you know, never. And I think just to add to that, there's a cocktail for every single occasion. Mm-hmm. And I think when looking at developing cocktails, unlike beer or unlike wine, where it is very much, this is what it is, and you can tweak the flavors a tiny bit, but that's about it. When you're developing cocktails, you can develop a cocktail specifically for a picnic or 
an evening on the beach or whatever it is to give you those sensations of where you are and to give you the magic of, of that special occasion. And I think that's what we're really interested in is, is figuring out, okay, what do consumers feel and what is what are those moments that we can help elevate as opposed to just going, here's a nice quality cocktail, which I suppose has been the focus of the brand or half the brand for the last two years. It's about really honing in on that side of how do we make people uh, elevate the mundane? How do we make people uh, get that sense of adventure with their friends? And that's really what we're interested in. There's a cocktail for, I mean, I mean the, the possibilities are endless. <laughs> yeah, 100%. And in terms of, of that feeling that you guys are sort of speaking about. Can you guys remember that feeling when you first got your first order through whatever platform it was a couple of years ago? You know, how did, and I'll start with you, Ranch, how did that make you feel when someone wanted to buy the shit you were putting out? It was a co- it was a combination of um, validation because, you know, it's something that you've you've put your heart and soul into for, for, for months and months and you've, you know, you, 24-7 your mind's on it and you're thinking constantly is this the right way to do this is this going to taste good are people going to love this so it's on one hand it's it's just validation and relief uh, that actually it's kind of worked you know even if we did one order it has worked technically yeah. and then the other side is just pure fire pure fuel just <laughs> pure excitement energy like actually right this is one person let's make it two let's make it four let's just absolutely grow this baby you know let's just keep on doing everything we can to make this one into two just to keep it keep on rolling and yeah i think you know i just remember us all looking at each other when those numbers started rolling in and just being completely shocked relieved but more more than anything just excited pure energy and in a funny way just to add to that we we've had so many of those moments where it started with the first order and then it would have started with the first corporate virtual masterclass that we did and then it would have been moments throughout to which culminated recently with Winter Wonderland where we were stood in the middle of the ice bar surrounded by every single person in that place drinking one of our drinks and we had a moment of just pure elation because we've gone from it was the same feeling as the first order just on a, a, a larger magnitude of everyone here is enjoying something that we've created and i don't think there's a feeling that can quite surpass that and i suppose that's the the thing that we're going to be constantly chasing until at least everyone in the country has tried once (laughs) (laughs) all 70 million people this podcast is sponsored by Huel, and I want to talk to you about the Huel Black Edition, which is a high-protein meal with everything your body needs in a complete shake. All you need to do is add two scoops to water, and you've got yourself 26 essential vitamins and minerals and 40 grams of protein in one 400-calorie serving. If you want to try it, go to Huel.com forward slash success. That's H-U-E-L dot com forward slash success, and you'll get a free T-shirt and a shaker with your first order. Back to the episode. And it's interesting because obviously I'm assuming the same feeling happens when you successfully fundraise, be that seed or series A or whatever uh, uh, raise you're going through. But interestingly with you guys, you were very picky in terms of who you wanted to a certain extent to invest in the business. You wanted a a cross section of individuals on, on, on the most recent fund. And a lot of founding entrepreneurs would just go, I really don't care who invests. I just want the money. Why, Zav, for you, is it so important to get such a good cross section of people? Well, I think it's the the power of network, uh, and I suppose you would be testament to that in 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 many regards. Because I suppose for us, money—sure, you can bring on money and raising money. If you have a good product and if you've got product market fit and you're beginning to prove traction, um, is actually relatively easy. So it's not about saying yes to any money that comes through the door. It's about going, okay, how is this money actually going to work for us, or or how is that network going to work for us, even if it's just bringing someone on. Uh, with a notable name or bringing an advisor on um, who's got experience in the field. It's about going, how does that all build to the case of Mixtons moving forwards, yeah. whether it be direct professional services or whether it be just someone to speak to and, and pick up the phone with. So in this last fundraise, every single person that we've brought on um, has it or does in some way, shape or form add value to Mixtons in the long term, mm-hmm. potentially. So for us, we, I think we brought on about 15 investors for this round. Um, some are small tickets, some are large tickets. It's not about the money. It's about how much value are they going to be adding to us uh, as we move forwards. 
In terms of um, looking at moving forwards and, and the rebrands and such like that you've done on so many occasions in the past, because you didn't start out as mixed and did you? you started out with it with a completely different name, but you've just obviously completed a, a, a new rebrand. What, what are the reasons and why so many different iterations? Well, yeah. So, so of course we were, we were a COVID baby, right? So I think, and because we didn't know exactly how far this would go, this could have lasted just for the COVID, just for the pandemic. So we did base the branding around that. So of course, Knocktails is our original name. Um, you know, knock knock. Who's that? Cocktails. Um, so it was very kind of tongue in cheek, very simple. I think, you know, we kind of blew up once we once we launched, as we mentioned, and we were in the trench. We were in the trenches deep, and we were working super hard, and we didn't really kind of have a second to to kind of rise above rise above it and get a greater perspective of what potential is there. And it wasn't until myself and Zav actually were in Cornwall together. And we kind of sat back and we thought, hang on, you know, there is something here, you know, but in order to get that, we need to essentially do a rebrand because what we've got at the moment, we've cobbled together ourselves. It's obviously very COVID specific. Um, we need a more of a, you know, a commercial brand, right? Um, and this is where we get to be actually changing the name because we love the name and, you know, as I'm sure any founder can say, you know, you get very attached to your brand. Um, we weren't attached to kind of the design side because we, we cobbled it together ourselves, but the name we loved. So we've kind of started this process of a rebrand, keeping Noctels as the name. And we brought on a really, a really brilliant agency. Um, and we were, we were three months into the process and we'd spent ages kind of creating this new, um, quite artistic craft quality, um, brand, keeping the name. And I'll never forget this moment. And this is one of the, the first biggest thumbs that we'd had, which was, I get home and there's a letter through the door and it's and it's addressed to me and i open it up and i'm you know it's one of these brown envelopes that you never you, you always know they're not going to be good news and <laughs> it was from a company i'd never heard of before um but it turns out they were europe's biggest ipo law firm and uh, i read it once i read it again and it wasn't until the third time they really sunk in i was like and I remember straight away, I popped it down, I rang the boys straight away, and I said, guys, like, the worst has basically happened. Um, we've got a cease and desist. And it was from, like I said, it was from Europe's biggest IPO firm who essentially had a dormant trademark in the States of, of our name. And we thought, we thought we were safe because there's a thing called a five-year rule. We thought it was a three-year rule where if something's dormant for, for, for five years, then it's fair game. We thought it was three. We were just coming to the end of a five-year, well, coming to that five-year period. Um, and we tried to trademark it. It obviously flagged the systems. And yeah, long story short, uh, we got a big scary letter. And yeah, we had two weeks to, to basically either completely rebrand, change the name. We obviously had loads of knocktail stock. We were so far through the branding process already. Uh, it was a nightmare and we just didn't know what to do. Obviously, we'd had no kind of prior history with, with this sort of thing before, so it was very scary. Um, but we, you know, there is a way, you know? Like I said, we put our heads together, we thought what the solution is, okay, we're already doing this rebrand, let's just try and keep that ball rolling, but let's just come up with a new name. And it was every single day, every single night, reeling off names, 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 like just long lists. I mean, we've still got them. Um, and we just couldn't get to something. And it wasn't until the day before the agency were like, look guys, we need a name. Otherwise, essentially we've got other projects. We've got to, we've got to bench this. And it was the night before, and I remember we were on a call and we were reading through the letter again and again. And it was, it was just one of these moments where you just can't write it because we read it through. And then I remember just saying the guy's name was, was Ryan Dixton. And I remember getting to that and saying Dixton's and then Zaf was saying, yeah, I mean, can we call it that? Is that too close? Sim was saying, actually, yeah, you know what? That sounds like a cocktail brand. That really does. Mm. And then kind of in unison, we were like, hang on, let's mix that up. Mixtons. <laughs> and we all pondered it for a little while. And then eventually we're like, shit, this is it. Mixtons. And I mean, yeah, the rest is history, really. So, so basically, the managing partner of that law firm has a cocktail brand named after him, and I'm not sure if you ever know, but we're going to send him a box when we do the rebrand. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds perfect. Um, hopefully, it won't be a cocktail that doesn't taste brilliant and does taste shit because of who he is. No, you know what? I've got, I've only got the biggest, 
the biggest respect for him. If it wasn't for him, we wouldn't be we wouldn't be here as Mixton said. If you weren't sued, you wouldn't be here. Look at that. That is pragmatism. What went through your head, Sav, when uh, when Rans called you up and went, boys, we've got a big brown envelope here and we need to we need to sort of think about something quite significant here? I mean, I think it's part of the fun. And I think that really is what I suppose I alluded to and Ranj alluded to um, before is it, it growing up in a, in a world where you're told everything's scary and you need to follow a path. And if anything goes wrong, then you're screwed. Um, that's why it just never aligned with us. So f- for us, we actually enjoy those moments now of, of the thumb. And it's like, okay, how do we problem solve our way out of this out of this hole? And I think for me in particular, being uh, the most dyslexic, because the boys are probably also <laughs> dyslexic, but being the most <laughs> dyslexic, I think that that's the natural tendency that we have is to look at the world and go, okay, it doesn't make perfect sense to me in the way it's being presented. So how do mm-hmm. I solve it? How do I come up with a solution to it? Um, so those moments I I love more than anything. Even if the business is at risk, it's that's what makes it exciting and exhilarating. And I think, you know, I, I can't count on both hands how many times I think we could have just benched it and we could have said, you know what, this is a sign just to stop over and over again. And that obviously was the first one. We've had many since. Um, but I think as a three, like I said, we you know, we club together and we'll always find a way and we want to find a way. And it is exciting. It is what gets us up every day. And and yeah, just just we just want to build this and keep it rolling. In terms of and kind of coming away then from the bottles which you which you once had, um, you've you've transitioned into cans. What Zav was the reason for for going into that world? We always knew that we would end up in cans. Um, but as I mentioned at the beginning, we wanted to see how far we could go by doing it ourselves. And the only viable way of doing that was with with glass bottles, um, just by virtue of canning lines being super, super expensive. Um, the fact of the matter is that we could hand fill uh, 500,000 bottles if we so please, and if we could actually prove that amount of traction. So for us, it was about doing it at the right time and doing it at a point that made the most sense from a business perspective, because we could have fundraised at the very beginning and given 20% away for a hundred grand. And great, a lot of businesses do that and, and fair play, but for us, it was all about creating long-term value. Um, so we knew that if we could do seven figures in a year or two years, that we would get much more favorable terms when reaching the point that we're at. And also, we'd have all of the learning and understanding that we currently have. Because had we launched cans in the first place, we'd have probably launched with the wrong product. So um, for us, that's I suppose that's point number one. But point number two, ultimately, is, is the fact that cans, I believe, are now seen as a viable alternative to for premium products. I think people, especially through COVID, now understand that you can get really decent products in a canned format. It's infinitely recyclable, which is really, really important to us and actually a major driver for us moving away from the glass bottles. Um, it's far uses far less energy to actually create the aluminium in the first place. Um, and in terms of usability for consumers, whether you're on a train or whether you're in a park or something, a can is just far more user-friendly than actually taking around a bottle. So it kind of ticked all the boxes for us and, and made it a no-brainer. As a startup or SME, it can be hard to keep your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on 100% of the time. A past guest of the show and now series sponsor, Habu, offers solutions to businesses and organisations of varying sizes the ability to pick and pack your product from their D2C hubs across Europe. You can now stop asking your partner to help box up a recent order, and your living room will no longer be filled with boxes from floor to ceiling. Instead, the team at Habu will do all of this for you, and you don't need to worry about size. Habu helps startups with orders of less than 500 parcels a week all the way through to larger organisations with more complexities. So speak to the team at habu.com and quote success pod and see how they can help you. Back to the episode. In terms of you saying that you tried to take it as far as you could, uh, you know, with bottles, but also with the cash that you had, so many, as you rightly say, entrepreneurs do go and try and use someone else's cash from day one to try and build the business or build a brand. You know, for you guys to do it with your own cash, take it to a certain point and then go and ask for the money kind of means that you run the business in a more responsible way because you have experienced the fact that it was your own money. Do you think, Zav, that's important when starting a business to try and do it yourself if you can first? 100%. And I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the whole lean startup methodology. Um, I think you can end up in rabbit holes with it, but I think the basic premise of even if it's just putting it down on a napkin and showing someone the idea and saying, would you buy this or what would you change about it is the cheapest way of your first validation. 
And I think gaining validation of ideas is not about going to your family and friends and saying, guys, I've got ideas is good because they're always probably going to say yes. Um, <laughs> but it's about going to real customers, real cold people, showing them your product, giving it to mm. them, getting them to taste it and interact with it and saying, is this something that would benefit your life in some way, shape or form? And doing that in the cheapest way possible allows you to then go to investors and say, well, I've, I've now got 10,000 or 100,000 people who agree with me, as opposed to saying, I've got this idea and I think it's going to be good. So it was very much about the, the early validation building and hypothesis testing that, um, that we built the business around. In terms range of, of looking at sacrifices and such like, and, and Sim's obviously not here to say that his main sacrifice was his kitchen and back garden, but <laughs> in terms of range, what you've sacrificed to, to kind of get Mixtons to where it is today, what have you had to say no to? Yeah, a hell of a lot, you know. I think I speak for, for me and the, the two boys when I say, you know, if, if we weren't doing this, um, we'd definitely be in a different, you know, much more favorable place in our lives in terms, you know, we say, we we don't say, you know, we, we can't do, uh, we can't go on holidays left, right and center. We can't have weekends. We can't go to family events. You know, we can't, you know, we, we basically just can't live a, you know, a normal life. But then I think none of us want to, you know, like Zav's touched on, we live for the risk. We live for the, the exciting. We, none of us want to be on that path, on that conveyor belt that essentially means you're just moving, even if you're not doing anything, you know? We want to wake up every day and know that if we don't do what we need to do, we're not going to move anywhere. Like it's on us. Um, everything is on us. We are independent in this, and we really have to to put the effort in if we want to. And with putting the effort in, it means we are going to have to make sacrifices. It means we are going to miss out on things that you know. You look on social media, and all our peers are doing, and people are getting promotions, people are buying new things. But actually, what's really important to us, um, and it is just that building, that creation, and it is that. You know, trying to have a real positive impact uh, on the world in in a social and environmental way. You know, because I think you know, Mixton's yes, we've got environmental kind of sustainability as a huge pillar because you know, a it's a passion of, of all of ours, but also b I think as a modern brand, you'd be stupid not to. But you know, from a social perspective, like we've said, Mixton's I think can really, really bring out um, the good in potentially a very dark time at the moment. You know, there's doom and gloom everywhere you look, whereas cocktails are good for the soul, you know? They're drunk to remember, not to forget. <laughs> and I think that's really important, and that's what really keeps us going, and that's what really makes us, you know, t take these sacrifices, not with a look of, oh, this is, we have to miss out on this, but it's, mm. I am prepared to compromise because of where we're going. You know, it's it's having that true belief in, in and I guess, the mission that really allows us to to kind of make these sacrifices. Yeah, I mean, just to add to that, uh, uh, even to this day, it, it's happening. Um, just three days ago, uh, my friend asked me if I wanted to go on a holiday for next year, and I've had to say to him, I can't. I know I won't be in a position to. Um, I'm a surfer, and it's a, a, an ideal surf location somewhere around the world, but I'm just not in a position to be able to say, okay, I can take a month off and, and go and do that. So. The, sometimes it can be difficult where you're seeing all of your friends earning a decent amount of money and you're earning probably the same as you were earning when you were working in an ice cream shop back when you were 16, <laughs> if not less. If um, not less, yeah. <laughs> but, but realistically, also, do our friends have those moments where your employees turn around to you and say, I love my job, I yeah. love what I do because of something that the three of us have created? Uh, and those moments you, you can't pay for and you can't be paid enough for because it's something that um, is just ultimately more rewarding than, than money. But boys, you must have a lot of fun because obviously it, the summer is around the corner, right? And summer for you guys must be a pretty big deal. I know obviously Winter Wonderland was 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 a really good crack, but with the festivals, with the events, with the cocktails that people will be consuming at these things, you know, you should have a lot of fun whilst you're there, right? So you can still enjoy these experiences. Ranj, do you actually get any time off in the summer because of all these events? Um, I would love to say yes, but no, it's, <laughs> it's a definite no for now. I mean, you know, like... Like I said, we're we're still in the lean mode. You know, we're trying to do everything we can. You know, do we hire another events manager to run these events, or do we just do it ourselves? You know, like if we mm -hmm. if if in the summer ninety percent of our focus is on that, why should we not be out there as well every day, um, putting the hard graft in? Um, yeah. Don't get me wrong. You know, it is fun. It is enjoyable. Um, you know, 
but it is tiring. It is relentless. It is every single day. But again, you know, it, it's it's just the sacrifice you make because of the you know of the rewards you get along the way. You know, seeing a hundred deep queues, seeing people's reactions when they're you know you're drinking their sorry they're drinking our drinks. Um, but no, I mean you know it's the festivals are great. You know, seeing your favorite bands that sort of thing. But living life on the road, um, you know, not showering for weeks on end potentially <laughs> um it, it does add up and you do kind of get to september and you're very happy um, yeah. but also you know fulfilled so boys i've got i've got uh, a festival coming up in august i'm going to have crates of cans obviously mixtons nothing else if other people want to buy mixtons where can they where can they go to buy the cans sure so at the moment we are heavily e-commerce uh and event focused but we are looking to uh, break into retail this year. That's very much our goal. Um, we have some early conversations lined up that uh, are very promising. And uh, upon delivery of uh, our first product, um, we're, we're very, very confident. Just because of how unique the proposition is uh, against the entirety of the market, we're really taking a, a new space, a new position, and a new stand for for what cocktail can be. So. Um, the the best part of this year's focus will be landing those early listings and we're hoping to to gain some sort of major listing by the end of this year perfect boys thank you ever so much for coming on honestly great products have to say that obviously but it is a fantastic product um yeah i wish you the best luck look forward to joining you all on the journey and i'll speak to you boys very soon thanks for having us right on thanks a lot And here's a little message from our carbon offset partners, Carbon Positive. So, hey, Andrew, I just, I thank you so much for joining us. We obviously wanted to introduce you because you guys are happily uh, supporting us from a carbon positive point of view, trying to get the, the podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months. But I wanted you to tell the listeners why you chose this podcast and, you know, what's so special about carbon positive from a non-for-profit point of view. So we decided to choose success in the mind podcast for a couple of reasons it's not necessarily our absolute forte because of uh, our position being a being a not-for-profit but uh, it definitely aligns with some of the aspects that we do uh, and that we want to support podcasts with in particular we want to make it easy for podcasts to be able to to be able to become carbon positive and to be able to make their podcast environmentally friendly and show their listeners that they have a social conscience. We understand that it's difficult for people and it takes a lot of time sometimes and we wanted to give podcasts the tools to be able to calculate and offset their carbon footprint throughout their whole podcast, which goes from everything from production to their listeners across the world, and to be able to offset that footprint and become a carbon positive podcast. So, I mean, for us, it's it's something quite close to our heart. From a business point of view, we're very much focusing on becoming carbon neutral. Now, with regards to the podcast, you guys are kindly helping us along the way of becoming carbon positive. So, 120 percent uh, uplift on on that. Essentially, just talk to me about how you're going to make our podcast carbon positive over the next 12 months? We essentially use an algorithm to calculate the carbon footprint of every podcast. So with that algorithm takes into account lots of different factors, basically everything from uh, listener location, listener device choices, global electricity consumption. For example, with the device choices, if someone was to listen to a podcast on a mobile phone, it's 600 times less energy intensive than if they were to listen to it on a laptop or computer, for example. So we'll take all of that information and we'll create a custom plan that will be specifically tailored towards successes in the mind that will help us in two ways. It will help us to make sure that we can keep really up-to-date statistics for every single podcast and it will also give us a good idea to make sure that the algorithm is calculating efficiently you know you're a non-for-profit business b um i don't think you've necessarily worked with podcasts necessarily like ours before so it's really exciting to be on that journey with you helping you guys do it but but similarly sort of seeing what you guys want from us equally no you are you are um absolutely our first major case study which is super exciting for us because it really gives us some in-depth data that we can use to help every other podcast 80 to 85 percent of the podcasts that are produced will be able to 
offset their carbon footprint for less than the price of a takeaway coffee every month. We see podcasting as a it's quite a young industry, which means that we have a unique opportunity to be able to gain there early and to support podcasts to become carbon positive and make podcasting the world's first carbon positive medium. It's properly exciting to, to be on that, that, that journey with you. And I know you guys are based out in Switzerland and we're obviously based in the UK, but to be able to come together remotely is, is very exciting. And to be able to see our podcast become carbon positive over the next 12 months for me um, is just another reason reason to, to, to get involved in it. So thank you very much for asking us to get involved. In terms of people that are listening to, to this show and every other show, where can they go to A, find out more about Carbon Positive um, and B, what do they need to do to get in touch? The place to find out more would be to go to our website, www.carbonpositive.com. But then as we all know, every business comes with unavoidable carbon footprint. We understand that Offsetting isn't the absolute answer, but we can make the industry better, first of all, and then what is unavoidable footprint, we can try and offset. There'll be a tips and tricks page on the website, which will help to reduce, first of all. And then there's a really short little page on there that you can input two pieces of data, monthly downloads and average listening time. And then within two minutes, a podcast can become carbon positive. I think it's worth saying as well, the um, the footprint of the podcasting industry is 1.7 billion kilograms of carbon per year, just because that doesn't really mean anything to me a year ago, but now it does. It's equivalent to 2 million flights from London to New York every year, or alternatively, a flight every 15 seconds. It's a drop in the ocean as far as the world is concerned, but if we can reduce that and obviously eventually bring that down to zero, or even bring it into the positive section, which is what we're hoping to do, then we hope that that should make a difference. Wow. 15 flights a second, carbon positive. I love it. I'm glad we're involved, and thank you so much for thinking of us, Andrew. Thank you very much, Oliver, for speaking to me. 